But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) All right, you may be seated. Thank you, Ray. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, commit this to you, commit this time to you that that we would uh, acknowledge this. This is your word. And so, Lord, we didn't come here this morning uh, just for the breakfast tacos, though we're thankful for them. We came here to feast on you. And so, Lord, would you you feed us this morning from your word? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are just joining us this morning, welcome. Um, we are in the book of Acts, as you see. We are walking through this book that, uh, and one thing that we see in the book of Acts um, is that the one thing the church is not is a building. Um, though we usually think of churches as buildings, um, we usually think of it as just associated with just the pastors or with the people on stage, but it's not any of those things. It is all of us. We are church is what we are titling this series. And so, and the church is on the move. It is pushing outwards. It's, it's a mission agency. And so what we do here today, yes, we want you to come and we want to comfort you. And we want you to hear the, the goodness and the glory of, of God and what he's done for you. But we also want this to be a time that, that fills you up to, to then push you out into the community so that Monday through Saturday become just as important as Sunday. Okay. And so that, that's kind of what we're doing here. And so last week we sung happy birthday to the church. Um, I wish we would have, that would have been amazing, but God, God pours out his spirit on the church. The church is being, is kind of starting anew. It's a continuation of the old Testament. And so it's not, we don't want to make a a hard distinction here, but the Holy spirit comes out like this mighty wind. And then there's tongues of fire that come down from heaven and, and people are speaking different languages and the church is birthed. There are, there are, there, 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 we have a new way of, of seeing the world right here. And, and today we get the very first sermon of the church. And so it's really interesting. What you might be asking, what's the church going to be about now that we are here? Now that, that there's this new way of doing it. it. It's the first sermon and Peter's preaching it. The Peter, the same guy who betrayed Jesus three times. Uh, and so he wasn't disqualified to cut, but he's now here preaching. What will Peter have to say? And what we find in the New Testament is that whenever New Testament preachers preach, they don't just go with the news, they use their Bible. 
They preach their Bible, which would have been the Old Testament. And so whenever the New Testament preachers are preaching, they're preaching from the scriptures. And what is the main point of that scripture, and we find every single time here, is that all of these preachers have some a particular type of glasses on in which they now see the, the world. And so they have these glasses or these goggles on um, that make them see the world in a very different way. Now, how many of you guys have ever seen uh, this uh, let's say social media campaign is where I've seen it mainly um, for these particular type of glasses for people who were born uh, colorblind. Have you seen this? So someone who's who's been colorblind and, and whether they're an adult or a kid and they, 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 they for the very first time put on these glasses Whereas before in their life, they had everything in dull grays or, or muted reds or the, the blues and the purples all ran together. And they put these glasses on. And it, I mean, it's, it's a thing of beauty. Like, they, you see them do this every time. You see, like, you look at different ages, adults, kids, grandparents, like, they're just like, and they start crying. They're like, it's red. And they're like so excited about red. They're so excited about purple. Like, oh, it's beautiful. And they're like, this is it. This is how the creation, the, the, the great creator with his brush strokes is meant to see. And it's just an awesome feeling to watch someone just be in total awe and wonder. And that these glasses are not saying, let, let me just change reality. They're not virtual reality, right? They're not putting those glasses on. They're, they're making them see how things are actually created. And so what we find in the, in the, in the New Testament is that the, the authors take their Old Testament and they put on Jesus goggles. And so they put on these Jesus goggles and, and, and they're reading everything Christocentrically. Meaning that, that when they, they put on these Jesus goggles, they realize that everything is pointing to Jesus. Everything they're seeing. All the New Testament authors say that Jesus is the point of every part in the Bible. That he's the climax of every theme in the Bible. That he's, he is the, the truer version of every figure in the Old Testament. And so when Peter looks at three different Old Testament passages, to spare you, I only had us read one passage. Uh, it, we have a longer passage today. But we had to, we, Peter is looking at three different Old Testament passages and every single time he does that, he sees that these are mere shadows of the truer reality. These scriptures are, are the scaffolding around the building blocks of what Christianity is. And so Joel, David, Abraham, Moses, they are all pointing us to Jesus. And so all of your Sunday school answers have always been true. What's the answer? Jesus. You had great Sunday school teachers. And so this is huge for us in our church here. This is something for us I want us to learn that. When we read the Bible, sometimes when we read it, we, we can look at it and go, there's a lot of things that it's telling me to do here. There are a lot of rules. Um, there are a lot of laws. And we, we read a lot about a lot of stories about people who, who broke God's laws and some bad things happen. And so it's easy for us, I think, to then look at the scriptures and think, this book is mainly trying to teach me how to be better. It's tempting to think that the Bible is basically about you and how to help you shape up and be better and how to help you live a better life and, and have a more productive life um, to make your parents happier and to make your friends happier. Um, but what we see with the Christian preachers in the New Testament is that when they preach the Old Testament, they said it's about Jesus. And so when they're in Genesis, they're like, this is pointing to Jesus. 
When they're in the Psalms, they're saying this is pointing to Jesus. When they're in the minor prophets, they're saying this is about Jesus. How? (laughs) Well, we're about to find out. (laughs) But it's saying that he is the key because they they preached grace first. They found out that, that the Bible is mainly about a savior, a Messiah to come. And so it's not about what I've done. It's about what he's done. So he's the point, he's the key, it's not about me, which is a very freeing thing to to believe and to see right here in the scriptures. And so let's look at Peter's sermon. Um, Before he begins, he kind of starts off rather hysterically. I don't know if you caught this. Uh, In verse 14, he says that his people aren't drunk because the Spirit came down and they're speaking in different languages and they're worshiping Jesus and the assumption is they're drunk. Uh, And his rebuttal is, it's only night in the morning. I can see how it looks that way, given our proclivity to drink as Jews. Um, but come on, it's it's not even lunchtime, is his answer. <laughs> Nobody's drunk here. Like, he doesn't defend say, guys, you know, we're actually more moral than that. Uh, his rebuttal's not based on morality, but on timing. Uh, and so it's only nine. If, if it was noon, yes, you have an argument, but not. But what you're seeing here is actually the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. So in verse 17, it says... And in these last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so Peter, first off, says what just happened, that Pentecost was was this fulfillment of a prophecy that was made long, long ago by Joel. And what it means is that he's saying this is a fulfillment, and that means is that we are now living in the last days. Peter was living in the last days. And you think that doesn't feel very last since that was 2,000 years ago. But what he's saying is that there's this new era that has just arrived where sons and daughters will prophesy and visions and dreams and they will prophesy telling what God has done. And so he did it and the Old Testament prophecy ends in verse 21 and says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so what he's trying to say is God is coming. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's on the move and he's and he, he's reaching people. And so Peter connects this old outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a vindication of Jesus's life, death and resurrection. And so God's final act of salvation is is, is beginning to take place. And then in verse 24, he shows us that nothing can stop Jesus. This is this is Christus Victor, <laughs> that God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so this imagery here is just fantastic. Because whenever it says uh, the, the pangs of death, this is the image of childbearing. Okay? And so what it's saying is that death is being, is being regarded as being in labor. Death is in labor and it's unable to hold back its child, the Messiah. So why could not death hold back Jesus? And Peter would reply that Jesus was the Messiah and the Messiah cannot be held by death. And so it's not possible that the chosen one of God should remain in the grip of death. It's not possible. The abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold a child in her body. And so death has got nothing on Jesus. God plucked the stinger out of death. And with death, we have the death of death in the death of Christ, right? With Christ's death, we have the death of death in the death of Christ. That's not mine, that's John Owen. That's a long time ago. And to reinforce this, 
Peter goes back to another Old Testament passage in Psalm 16, where David says, and in our verse uh, 27 here, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And so what David is saying and what the now where Peter is preaching that even the grave does not abandon his own child, but gives him assurance of the resurrection. Now, David's writing this with with full knowledge and knowing full well that what all the Old Testament writers knew that no one can escape death. That none of us here can escape death. It is a reality. That everyone descends into the grave at the appointed time. But he is saying this filled with hope. That David asserts that he will see God's face. And not seeing a resurrection in their time. That he will see God's face and have access to him after death. And this isn't the end. And so what I want us to hear is that our lives are never a period. They're a comma. It's never the end. The story just keeps going on. That we are going to live forever and ever and ever. And so this Christ-centered preacher here says the reason David had hope was not just some wish. Like, I hope there's something after this life. The reason he has hopes is because of verse 31. He said he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so the story of the cross is necessary to the Christian story. But I want us to hear that it's not all the story. I think we in Christian circles want to only focus on the death of Christ, which is okay to focus on, and I want us to focus on. But I want us to also see that what the book of Acts does is also celebrate the victory of Christ. That he's a king, Jesus. Yes, he died, but he rose. And we can smile. We don't always have to be gloomy. We, we, we are witnesses of this. And where is Jesus now? Verse 33 tells us that he's exalted and at the right hand of God. And this is where we get in our summary and in, in the Apostles' Creed where we, say, where we say, I believe in Jesus. And it goes on to say, who sits at the right hand of the Father. That's because of this verse right here. So where is Jesus? He's reigning in heaven. In verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Remember, he's both. He's not just the Christ. He's, he's also Lord. He's not just a victim, but he's a victor. Right? And so risen king. Amen? amen. But then he puts in that really pungent statement there. Yes, victorious lamb. Yes, suffering king. The almighty who died. And to be clear, whom you crucified. Twice in this passage, if you read through it all. Peter emphasizes who crucified Jesus but you. And, and here's the balance, that, that he, the emphasis of this, that it's not just on his death but on his victory, but he's balancing it and showing us that how essential both are. And Peter's summary to the Old Testament in verse 23 is this. This Jesus delivered up according to the plan, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Just time out. <laughs> Want to read that again? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite and foreknowledge plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. So much is being said right here in this one verse. Like... <laughs> 
you may have heard the stories and, and, and rumors about what we prophesied when he went up to the spirit, but he was, he was delivered up. It wasn't just by accident. He was delivered up according to a plan. And so that God knew this would happen. He foreknew it and God actually planned for it to happen. God planned for his son to die. Which is why all the Old Testament prophecies talk about a coming Messiah who's going to pay for the sins of the people. And so to put it this way, nothing happens without God's willing it to happen. That God is that sovereign. Nothing happens without God willing it to happen and willing it to happen before it happens and willing it to happen in the way that it happens. But at its heart, it's saying there's nothing different from the assertion of the Nicene Creed that says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And so if you're able to say God is almighty, you're saying he, that he, he is sovereign. And to say that God is almighty, you're expressing his sovereignty and his, 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 his rule over all of creation. But here's the crazy thing. This Jesus, whom God planned and died for you, you killed. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are on full display here. And Peter affirms both and leaves the tension unresolved for us. Thanks, Peter. Great preacher there. God did plan it, and he places the blame on the people. And so what we see is that God is, he's never the author of sin, nor is he taking away someone's free will. No, they acted on their own accord, and they shouted, crucify, according to plan. Now, who's, he, who's Peter talking to? Maybe he's talking to the people who actually nailed the nails in his hand. Well, this was Pentecost. This was 50 days afterwards. And then there's also a feast going on where the, the, the city of Jerusalem is about to swell to two to three times its size. And so Peter, is, as we're about to find out, is preaching to more than 3,000 people at this time. From people from all over the world that are coming in for this festival who were definitely not there at the crucifixion. And so there's those in this crowd that in no way participated in, in the death of Jesus are responsible for his death. And you, you and I can say the same thing, right? I wasn't there. I can tell you right now that I wasn't alive 2,000 years ago. Uh, I wasn't there, and yet none of that seems to bother Peter. That you killed him. And in case you didn't hear me, you killed him. Every single one of us. Peter doesn't have a problem with telling us that though we weren't present, Jesus died because of sin and sinners. That not only is it true that if we had been there, we we surely would have been yelling crucify him or we would have run scared and, and hid in a corner. But it's also true that when when Adam sinned, we sinned with him and in him and therefore we are responsible for this. And so we, we, oh, we know this. We prefer the creation than the creator. We prefer the things of God than God himself. We, we all know deep down, no one's hiding it, that we, we're sinners. Not one of us can walk around feeling we're perfect. And so we all know we're sinners. But Peter is making it very clear that sin caused Jesus to die. And the people's response after preaching this whole sermon about all the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus and how all these things are pointing to Jesus. And it's really our fault that he came. And then what happens in verse 37? They were cut to the heart. We don't see them respond with, oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Well, let me weigh the pros and cons to this, Peter. Um, 
Maybe I can add this new religion to my profile, something I can add on to some, something of who I am. But what we, we, we see is that Christianity is not just an, an add-on. It's not an interest that you just add on to one of the million other things that you're interested in. I think I'll try Christianity today. No, you don't just add Christianity to your life. Who Jesus is for you becomes your life. And that once that happens, you get cut. Cut means to be stabbed. It means to be pierced. And it's not just hitting their heads. It's cutting their hearts. The, the blade of the gospel is not the blade of the thief that's cutting to hurt them. It's, it's the blade of the surgeon who's cutting you to heal you. Cutting us open to cure you, to melt you. And this is the essence of how you become a Christian. When sin becomes personal and not an abstraction, then you've owned your sin and you need a savior. It's one thing to know you've broken the rules, but it's another thing to know you've broken his heart. And so if you break the rules, you say, okay, I got caught. Yes, officer, I will not go 10 miles over the speed limit. And you feel obligated to just say, yes, I won't do it. There's nothing in you compelling you saying, yeah, I hate that I did that. You're just complying. And I think that's how we always think of our sin as just something that we just got caught with. But if you see God as that big lawgiver who's just trying to make you comply, you, you, you must obey. You, we, we won't ever return to him. We won't ever obey. We, we, we just don't want to do that. It's, it's, it's abstraction. It's not personal. But once we realize we didn't just break his law, but we broke his heart. I mean, that's when change happens. If I break my wife's heart, like, I don't want to do that to you. I hate that I've done that to you. It kills me. That that changes me. That That's a change of heart because I've broken someone I love. Why would I ever do that to you? That's the difference. What am I doing here? I become sick with myself. And so if I, we start seeing he loves me this much, that he would die for me, that we now realize that what kept him on the cross wasn't the nails, it was his love for me. That's what changes us. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing about a Christ-centered approach to Christianity. Is that it's all about Jesus. And here's the, the two-sided nature to that. That very same picture of the cross, the very same picture of Jesus dying on the cross that tells you how terrible your sin is because you killed him, you crucified him, is also the same picture that says you mean the world to him. It was according to plan. And so when you say he died because of me, yeah, that, that, that convicts me. But when you say he died because of me. I mean, that comforts me. That same picture is both cuts and heals in the same moment. He will take anything to save me. He will let the world come down on his head. He, he will close off close communion with his father, even if for a brief moment. He, he will give up everything because he doesn't want to lose you. And so they respond, what must we do? There must be something we can do. And they're not saying, what must we do? That's the complying part. They're saying, what must we do? We'll do anything. And that's the right response to Christianity. We'll do anything. 
And in verse 38 tells us, what do you do when you start, when you're cut by the gospel? First, repent. There's this change of direction. It may start with a feeling of remorse, but you can't stay there. You become Judas and you just stay in remorse. But you turn away from the sin and you turn to the Savior. And so the first it says repent and then it says be baptized. And so it's that sign and the seal of what God is doing. It's the image of washing away the sin. And we use water to introduce us into this new community. And so whenever people are baptized in the book of Acts, they're baptized into a church, into a church community. And so have you been baptized? Have you repented? Have you been baptized? And then two, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this this new power comes on you that makes you want to want to listen. You know that song, I want you to want me? (laughs) This power comes on you and says, I want to want to listen to you, God. And that, that, that brings me up into heaven because God puts his spirit in me. And so we get, we repent, we baptize, and now we get the spirit. And lastly, Fourthly, it says that it is covenantal because for verse 39, for the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And so God is going to change you and then he's going to change a whole community through you. It's not just for you. It's it, Yes, it's for you. Jesus died for you. But then he died for your children and all who are far off because Christianity is a lot more communal than we think. And then verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 believed and were baptized that day. Said, we got to do this. And this is what happens in the book of Acts. When Christ is preached, what the normal response is, people believe. People respond to it. And here's an important word there. It says, that day. Again, they're not going home and weighing the pros and cons of this. This wasn't a long process. They were added to the church that day. And so do you want to believe? Do you want to be saved? Jesus is telling you, you can trust in him and receive that power right now to this day. Peter says to you, this Jesus whom you've heard about, you killed, but he died for you out of an enormous love for you. And so repent and believe today. Don't wait. Have you been baptized? Come on. If you want to make a change, if you've been cut to the heart, would you pray with me right now? Let's all go, Lord, right now and pray. Lord, I I see how I have broken the law and your heart. And Lord, I, I, I see how my sin has cost you your life. And therefore, I trust not in my obedience, but in what you've done for me. And so would you be my Lord, my King, that I would follow happily? And would you be my Savior, Messiah, that pays for my sins? And so I give my life to you. And would you give your spirit to me? And for those of us, Father, who've, who've prayed that prayer, maybe it was a long time ago, but we've betrayed you again and again and again. God, would you give us Christ-centered goggles to see the world and that the gospel is, is for the beginning of salvation as well as for the long haul of salvation. Because it feels as though I need you more today than I did when I first believed. Jesus, would you save some of us the first time today? 
and remind the others of us that our salvation is still in your hands. Lord, may we not wait. If you've worked in some of us this morning, give us the joy and the courage to talk to some leadership here at Mosaic. We pray for baptisms to be a normal thing here at this church. And so may your spirit fall upon us, fill us and remind us of your promise and how it's for us, but also for those around us. And so in Jesus' name, amen.